Hey, hey, hey! It's your friendly neighbourhood religious studies podcast, the RSP. I'm David Robertson, and I'm Christopher Carter. And um, you'll probably tell that we've we've both seen the new Avengers film quite recently, and in fact, um, we took a very long time to actually start recording because we were dissecting it. Yeah, um, um, and if you've seen it, you'll. There's parts of the film where they're very close to where we're recording today. In fact, about two minutes away, that big fight sequence at the beginning where they can deep fry your kebab. Exactly. Um, and on the roof of St. Giles. Anyway, enough of this. Uh, uh, talking about dis- dissecting. <laughs> yeah, very yeah, yeah. good. Very good. Today we are going to be um, moving from static car- categories to a river of theories in this interview by Daniel Gorman Jr. with Joseph Josephson Storm, his uh, return visit to the RSP, I think. Mm-hmm. And in this time, he's talking about his book, The Myth of Disenchantment. So let's have it. Good afternoon, Professor. Good afternoon, Dan. So Jason Josephson Storm is calling in today from Williamstown, Massachusetts. Indeed. The snowy part of the western part of the state. Yeah. And I'm sitting in my kitchen. The snow hasn't reached me yet. All right. Today we will be talking about your new book, The Myth of Disenchantment, Magic, Modernity, and the Birth of the Human Sciences, published last May by University of Chicago Press. Uh, But I think before we get into that, we should tell our listeners where you're from, historiographically. Your first book uh, was set across the Pacific, The Invention of Religion in Japan. Yeah, in, indeed. Uh, yeah, my first book was my dissertation, and a uh, heavily revised dissertation, but called um, The Invention of Religion in Japan. And it was basically about Japanese intellectuals encountering the category religion for the first time uh, in a set of trade treaties in the mid-19th century, and trying to figure it out, figure out what the word religion meant. Uh, because there was no necessarily uh, equivalent translation term for religion in Japanese, and they had no clear idea uh, what, if anything, in Japan uh, was a religion or counted as the as a member of the category religion. And then in the book, I traced uh, in that book, I traced how the category religion uh, was debated and articulated in Japan, and how Japanese thinkers came to see that the term was embedded in a set of contrasts. On the one hand, with religion and science as putative opposites, and in the other is sort of religion and superstition as another kind of imposing term. And to figure out one, you had to figure out the other. At least that's what Japanese thinkers ended up deciding. And they ended up coining a completely new vocabulary of new terms in Japanese. Uh, for example, like the term shukyo uh, uh, for religion or uh, kagaku for science that didn't exist before this encounter with European thought. So that was, yeah, the dissertation sort of, I did both sides of the encounter, but mostly I was looking at Japanese sources, l- Japanese thinkers looking to the West. And then in some cases in that book, I flipped the encounter and looked at Europeans writing about Japan in the same period and looked at their sort of mismatch of conceptual um, ideas and terms. Yeah. If I remember correctly, in the invention of religion in Japan, you talk about a few Japanese intellectuals who spend time studying in the United States. Yeah, that's right, including thinkers like uh, Moriyari Nori, uh, who famously uh, came to the United States. I think he was at Amherst College, actually, at, uh, which is our arch rival here from Williams. But uh, but yeah, um, there. I, and I look at a number of Japanese intellectuals who traveled in the United States and wrote about uh, their experiences there, definitely, and uh, sort of tried to figure out the central edifices of Western thought. And this is a group of Japanese intellectuals whose writings on the West was has been historically less uh, studied uh, because they said weird things that don't fit the story that European thinkers have liked to tell about Europe. And so they were sort of considered to have gotten it wrong. But actually, I think that they had a lot of perceptive, interesting things to say. So that was the first book. Yeah, I want to dig into that a little bit. You're mentioning the story. 
that Western Europeans are telling about themselves. And that's a central idea to the myth of disenchantment in your next book. What do you see as the story they're telling about themselves? So one of the things that the Europeans presented was an equation between their technological civilization, uh, in other words, their guns and boats and what have you, and they're either cultural or intellectual traditions, and Europeans tended to tie them together and argue for the superiority uh, and the fundamental connection from the two. So even though gunpowder was invented in China, the printing press had its earlier formation, uh, for example, in China, although we can't see direct transmission there, uh, Europeans presented European technology uh, as proof that European civilization was superior, and they claimed often that European civilization was superior for two competing reasons, either because European civilization at that time was considered Christian, or they claimed that their civilization was superior because it was more rational. Uh, but uh, Japanese intellectuals encountering European culture were worried about what is this Christianity? Is it uniform? Or uh, more particularly, they, they also questioned the, the simple equation of, your, of rationality in European thought. And um, versions of that were, were questions about this disenchantment narrative. So the Europeans often claimed that their particular superiority came from the fact that they had disabused themselves of superstitions. But as some Japanese thinkers noticed, um, and this didn't make it into the first book or in the second book, but I'm publishing it uh, elsewhere as an article. A bunch of Japanese thinkers, instead of seeing a, um, a disenchanted West, saw a West full of spiritualists, full of people believing in the occult, full of uh, Pentecostal religious revivals, full of uh, people who believed in charms and the efficacy of talismans. So in that respect, the presentation of a West as uh, particularly a, a Europe or an America as radically other in, uh, in terms of its uh, uh, lack of superstitions didn't make sense to them. They could see uh, uh, not only a, uh, a disenchanted West, but in a way a mystical West. And this also paralleled, as they saw it, European interest in things like, uh, like x-rays and uh, radioactivity. Uh, European science was, was populating the world with invisible forces, and a number of European thinkers equated those, talked about spiritualism in terms of radioactivity or, or in terms of x-rays and what have you. So, um, so one of the things that early... Uh, that interested me was this weird, this interesting reading uh, of Japanese that Japanese thinkers produced about the West. The other things that they saw or didn't see that I found interesting in that project were uh, distinctions between philosophy and religion they found to be really problematic, or uh, uh, the idea of a secular state uh, was a complex construct that seemed in, in, in many respects mythical or what have you. Um, anyway, that's a lot about that book. Yeah. What you're suggesting is that with these Japanese intellectuals in the late 19th century, they're looking and saying, I mean, with their connection between science and religion, they're anticipating figures like Albert North, Alfred North Whitehead, rather. Uh huh. You mean who might see those two as having a different relationship? You're saying, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, well, so, for instance, Whitehead is a mathematician, but he's talking about universal principles of the spirit. Um, he's mm -hmm. making those connections. William James is using social science, but he's also interested in psychical phenomena. These individuals don't fit neatly into the philosophical box you're describing. Yeah, exactly. And I think they, they didn't fit in that box from, from Japanese scholars, and they don't fit that opposition. A lot of European history doesn't fit that opposition today. Like one of the grand myths that I'm to sort of pivot to the next book that I'm even interrogating in the myth of disenchantment uh, is this notion of a necessary conflict between religion and science, which turns out to be a pervasive myth articulated basically uh, in the 19th century in uh, Europe and America. And it presumes that religion and science are necessarily in conflict. And there are a lot of interesting things we could say about, for example, Draper, who's the first to talk about the conflict model, which he himself already uses as a way, as a Protestant anti-Catholic 
Catholic argument, uh, or we could say something about the number of scientists themselves who have not seen these two things in conflict or whatever. But I'm, what I was really interested in is how the categories of religion and science got articulated as spaces, as terrains, to borrow something that Peter Harrison uh, uh, later talked about, uh, uses that language. But to think about how religion and science were defined in opposition. And one of the things that I noticed, uh, and I'm sorry, if I get excited, I talk too fast, I'll try and slow down a little bit. Um, but like one of the things I noticed is that um, conceptually, there was often a third term. Like not only were religion and science positioned in conflict as part of this myth of, of, of a conflict model, but also uh, often religion was seen as opposed to something called superstition, which was like the pseudo-religion or the thing that looks like religion but is not religion is often described as either superstition or magic. And in the same, uh, similarly, science was often positioned in opposition to something called pseudoscience, uh, which was often also described as superstition or magic. So it seemed like the intellectual edifice uh, that was being formulated in the 19th century was a triadic oppositional structure between, on the one hand, a, a conversation about the difference between religion and science, but also religion and magic, and, and in particular also, uh, or, or, or magic and science, and in particular areas that uh, religion and science seemed to overlap were the most likely to be policed as illegitimate, as pseudoscience or as magic or as, you know, and, and I'm thinking of things like psychical research or spiritualism, uh, you know, table turning or what have you that presented itself as a science, as a science of, of the dead. Um, and so that terrain became fraught and policed. Yeah. Uh, something like spiritualism, it satisfies neither the pure modernist, the scientist, and it doesn't satisfy the Christians either. Yeah, often. Yeah. And although, right, exactly. So, I mean, although there are a range of scientists who love spiritualism and then a range of Christians or, well, let's say Quakers or what have you, that, as we know, were into spiritualism. But but you're right that, that it didn't fit the clean definitionary lines, but it, and that became an object of attack from both sides. Um, and so, yeah, so anyway, so one of the things that sort of already motivated the transition between the two books was uh, I got interested in trying to figure out if in Japan in the 19th century, you know, they were encountering these three categories as if they were already accomplished things, religion, science, and magic or superstition, I was interested in how those three got formulated as three distinct categories in European thought and how much boundary work was going on in policing them. And, and then also the ways that that boundary work collapsed. Um, and then the other kind of insight that motivated this second project is that a lot of the conversation about this third term, magic or spiritualism, connected itself up to a notion of modernity as such. So uh, one of the central myths uh, that, that I think we still share in the social, in much of the social sciences uh, is the notion that of some grand periodization called modernity. And the idea is that at a certain point, and everybody disagrees about when, maybe, you know, with the birth of the printing press or industrialization or the price of information or what have you, there's a rupture after which we enter a period called modernity. And, but often modernity is described in terms of something called disenchantment. And that disenchantment is usually defined as uh, an end of belief in spirits or an end of belief in magic. But the problem is that uh, if you look at it, and I have a chapter that looks at the contemporary sociological evidence, people didn't stop believing in spirits. Many Americans, uh, arguably, depending on how you define the categories, something like 75% of Americans hold on to some kind of paranormal or enchanted belief. Uh, belief in spirits, in ghosts, in angels, in demons, demons that possess people, etc. Uh, psychical powers, all this stuff is really widespread. Uh, astrology, uh, for example. So, you know, we might guess that the uh, academy has less, has more skeptics than others, but even then it's not necessarily clear. It's just there are different kinds of beliefs that, that people have. So, uh, and what's more, so it doesn't look like contemporary America is disenchanted according to those logics or contemporary Western Europe. And what's more, it turns out that the notion of modernity as itself disenchanted was basically formulated in the 19th century. And this is a period where scholars have already had a lot to say about occult revivals, about the importance of spiritualist seances, 
uh, about, uh, you know, widespread birth of psychical research and, uh, and uh, theosophy and a whole bunch of other traditions. And so, um, and it turns out that, uh, as I uh, argue in this book after, um, in The Myth of Disenchantment, after looking at, uh, I started looking at like these founding figures of this narrative of modernity as disenchantment, uh, who are often the founders of many of our disciplines, founders of sociology or psychology or psychoanalysis or philosophy or religious studies. And I looked through their diaries and their letters, and I, and I was able to locate them in the, in the exact milieu where magic was itself being practiced or believed. Like they hung out with spiritualists or they themselves called their own project theosophy and talked to these theosophists. So it looks like in a way that the myth of magic's departure was part and parcel of the conversations of occultists as well as scholars of religion. So uh, Helena Bolvatsky, for example, the founder of the Theosophical Society, she described modernity in terms of disenchantment and said that the central feature of the West was that it had lost belief in magic, even as she wanted to turn to India and her hidden masters to recoup the missing pieces. So what looked like the, 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 the difference, normally disciplines like sociology and religious studies are described themselves as disenchanting or secularizing, but that becomes harder to, to condense when you know that in the individual lives of a lot of these people, let's say Sigmund Freud, they, they find themselves having the beliefs that they are themselves describing as archaic. So some, uh, so what it means is that there's a way in which uh, this very notion of modernity as disenchanted turns out to be a myth. And that turns out to be one of the main things I try to argue uh, in the book. Uh, basically, not only wasn't, isn't it true now, but it wasn't true then. And we can see if we look at the lives, uh, uh, the private lives of a lot of these thinkers, that they had all these kind of, let's say, heterodox or complicated or interesting or enchanted beliefs themselves. So I think that's one of the big payoffs. So you mentioned it's a, if it's a flawed narrative to say that there's a triadic opposition of magic, Western Christianity, and spiritualism. If that's a flawed model and everything's more fluid, and as you say, you have scientists like Curie and Max Mueller who are going to seances, then what is the correct structure? Is there even a structure? Should we get rid of this triad? Is it the Tesseract and multiple, de de um, multiple dimensions wrapping around itself? What is it? So I think we tend to think of this triad as necessary and universal, but I think we're wrong about that. So what I'm not saying is that nobody believed in this triad, but rather in the process of constructing this triad, we carved out a much more complex, either heterogeneous space and then made a bunch of arbitrary divisions around it. So one of the things I'm trying to do is challenge the presumption of that triad. I would agree um, that it, it needs to be... Uh, unwoven in a certain way, but, and, but that doesn't mean that we deny that we've had this history. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how we study, let's to take a step back, these higher categories. So we spend a bunch of time studying within the, cat in the horizon of these categories. So let's say, you know, we spend a bunch of time thinking that religion was a universal and then trying to define the features that religion has. What's your, your definition of religion and how is it in all societies and all cultures? I don't think that that project has failed. Um, and it's not just failed. My book isn't the first to show this or neither of my books are the first to show this, but there's a lot of evidence that the category of religion is a, it, uh, takes its primary formulation, a particular period in uh, Euro-American history and then is imposed uh, uh, in a heavily negotiated and contested way in the rest of the globe. But uh, what I think what we can do as scholars is then not study the category as a universal thing, but study the category as it is articulated because and the effects that it's had. So we can trace this category is a kind of unfolding process or a, what I like to call a higher order assemblage and look at how various things are recruited into it. It's like an unfolding process, like a stream. To take a Whiteheadian metaphor, what, I, what I'm trying to do is a kind of, instead of a process physics, a kind of process anthropology and look at how these categories were historically conditioned and articulated and the implications of doing that. 
And that means that we have to locate ourselves as scholars within the categories themselves um, and our attempt to kind of work them out. Anyway, this is stuff I'm working on for the next book. So I'm, I probably shouldn't get a uh, monologue more about it, but, uh, but uh, I'm working on a book called uh, uh, Absolute Disruption, the Future of Theory After Postmodernism. And that's exactly about how do we work with and study these higher order categories uh, and how do we uh, sort of function uh, without returning to the older discredited modernism or turning into the wordplay of postmodernism. And what I argue for is a kind of pride in humble science is one of my phrases. And I can come up with a story and I come up with a kind of new philosophy of social science for a post-Kuhnian uh, way of looking at the world as kind of these aggregated uh, uh, sort of processes. But but I should probably step back. And return yeah, to the there's, I there's a little bit to unpack there. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Projects RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people that are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Let's begin with this idea of, I think one of the things we're dancing around this conversation is there's a difference between studying something and there's a difference between practicing it. So you mentioned, for instance, there are people in the 19th century who believe in the triumvirate of magic, spiritualism, and science. No, excuse me. No, no, I got the triumvirate wrong. The triumvirate is Christianity, spiritualism, and science. Okay, take a step back to the present. Religion, science, and magic, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So then us as a scholar looking back, you're seeing the flowing river where it's all intertwined, and there is no simple static thing. So then let's go another level, okay? So you've got the people in the past with the triad. You've got the people today, you, studying it, saying, no, I see a stream in which these people were functioning. So what's the next step? Where do we go if we're saying that our narrative of modernity and postmodernity is flawed? What's the next step for building a framework to understand this stuff? Um, So what I'm saying is that we locate ourselves within the horizon of temporality. So, I mean, in, in that respect, you know, so, I mean, um, one of the things that we have to do is recognize the limitedness of our own conceptual categories. I mean, now we're really onto my third book stuff. So, I mean, this is fun. Um, but uh, one of the things that we do is, is we have to recognize that oh, there's a way which I, I should take a step back and talk about the history of modernism and postmodernism and then tell you. Uh, and, and so the. Um, one of the things that uh, many of the academic disciplines were predicated on was a notion of concepts that was essentially Aristotelian in its basic function. Uh, this is a notion of concepts as having necessary and sufficient conditions for membership. And, and, and what's more, we thought that our concepts mapped onto the world, that they cut up what the Greeks had called the joints of nature and otherwise looked at where nature divided things up. So that made natural kinds of distinctions. Um, these are often, this is often called natural kinds. So we thought our, and we thought that if you could find necessary and sufficient conditions for membership in a given category, uh, and you could, you could identify its essence. And if you could figure out, say something about its essence, uh, you could begin to discover and develop, let's say, robust or scientific knowledge about a subject. In the hard sciences, we've, we've already begun to challenge the notion of essences. And, uh, and I think a lot of philosophy of science has already moved past uh, the way that those uh, conceptual categories are articulated. And in, and, uh, but in the humanities, 
We also had a crisis around this because we discovered that many of our concepts no longer worked. You, the, the capacity to produce necessary and sufficient conditions for the category religion turns out to have been a fraud, pro, flawed process, etc. So the question then becomes, uh, ha having, um, having, we have to then, instead of thinking of nature as jointed in the old-fashioned way, we have to think of it in a way a kind of a disjointed nature. And this is at least true, even if you think that there's a distinction between natural hinds and human kinds in which nature itself has joints, it's pretty clear that... Uh, that human kinds don't have the kinds of joints that we would like to project upon them. The, the joints that we have are historically contingent. So in part of what we end up doing is then um, studying, uh, locating ourselves within our, within our study. So this is a kind of reflexivity. And then uh, uh, focusing on how these conceptual categories are themselves constructed. But I worry that we're getting away from the... Yeah, the I feel like we're moving beyond the myth of disenchantment to what comes after yeah. we stop, after we oh. realize the myth of disenchantment is flawed. And we're also running out of time. So we, we sketched out the theoretical terrain. But I think what struck me with this book is that as much as we talk about the critical theory and, you know, the flawed basis of modernity, you're, you're showing an incredible range of material in at least, let's see, German, French. You're doing comparative linguistic work here also. Yeah. What is your line? I mean, it almost sounds like a Larry King softball question, but I am curious, what is your language training to be able to do a book like this? Because it's almost like you were doing the work of four books in one. You're talking about German intellectual history. You talk about the Renaissance. You talk about occultism in Britain and America in the 50s. Yeah, so um, so I grew up bi uh, bilingual with French and English, and I went to a French and English educational school uh, until I went to high school. And then um, having basically tested out of uh, high school French, I started Japanese in high school. Um, and my mother uh, was born in Germany, so I grew up also with, uh, with hearing a lot of German. And uh, so I had basically, so those, you know, German is my weakest uh, uh, of those languages. I also spent some time um, uh, in Barcelona studying Spanish. Uh, and then when I was living, I lived in, lived in France for a couple of years, lived in Japan, uh, lived in Germany. So, uh, and when I was in Japan, I studied classical Chinese. So basically, I, I have uh, English, French, uh, Spanish, German, Japanese, and classical Chinese. And then from Romance languages, Germanic languages, uh, you can get to other Romance and, and uh, Germanic languages easily. And then uh, when I was here a few years ago at Williams, I started, I did tutoring in, or I took or received tutoring uh, from uh, Chris Lavelle, who's a classicist here in Latin. So I was working on building my Latin. Uh, at the moment, I've just started, uh, to, I love languages, I've just started uh, uh, Biblical Hebrew. So I'm getting, I'm, in fact, what I'm going to go to uh, in 30 minutes is my Hebrew lesson. Um, but I just love languages. Um, I mean, I just love them. I, I'm a reader of languages more than a speaker of languages. I think uh, even though I talk quickly, when I, try, I, I like to be grammatical and then, and then I get tongue-tied if I'm trying to speak. I, I speak all my languages better drunk, uh, for example. Um, and, uh, but, and I, but I love, and I love like really puzzling things out philologically. So that's the kind of stuff that was in the background of, of that, of this book. Yeah. So I, you know, yeah. You also mentioned in our conversation, the idea of there are, there are moments in history, as you see it, sort of these explosive junctures that unsettle our models for understanding the world. You know, even look at Japan, the arrival of the Westerners unsettles their way of not seeing a division between spirituality and nature. Um, for Westerners, the atomic bomb, the discovery of the germ, uh, the DNA, these, these sort of explosive moments. And I find it interesting that you started writing the myth of disenchantment after an explosive moment, the Fukushima disaster. Yeah. So this yeah. is, we talk about, we're talking about reflexivity. So let's, I'm trying to situate you, Josephson, Josephson Storm in the fields that you're talking about. Where are you in the stream? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, oh, that's a big question. Um, 
do you want to know like why I came to this particular project when, or do you want to hear about uh, how I shifted from Japan to, to the Western European thing? Or do you want, I mean, I could go so many different directions. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, let's focus on, since we're talking about historical moments that upset the stream, that upset the models yeah. for you, it's, I want to talk about the Fukushima thing and how does that affect the way you conceive of religion? Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, you know, I was, as I mentioned at the beginning of this book, um, after I'd finished the invention of religion in Japan, but before it had um, come to press, uh, I was starting research on another project that was going to be about, uh, it was called Ghosts and Resurrections uh, in uh, Contemporary Japan. And it was about uh, sort of the history of the notion of spirits and about contemporary belief in talismans. And I was going to make the argument, or I was already making the argument that um, 19th and 20th century Japan wasn't disenchanted. Uh, but um, then the the incident, you know, I'd already done a lot of research toward that project. And one of the things that tipped me the other way, uh, just by, by by chance of timing, I was in uh, Kyoto. I was on my uh, on a sabbatical doing uh, an early pre-tenure sabbatical doing research. And uh, I was actually uh, at a tattoo parlor getting some uh, tattoo work done when uh, the Fukushima uh, incident happened. It was actually the, the earthquake off of the coast of Tohoku. We didn't know it was uh, Fukushima yet. And earthquakes are not uncommon in Japan. They're pretty common. And we didn't right away know that it was how huge uh, the effects were going to be. So a lot of people in the tattoo parlor would just stop what we were doing and we were just watching the television screens. And I remember seeing uh, the images of the tsunami. Uh, just, but, but not yet being aware of that, how, how tragic it, uh, and disastrous it was going to be in terms of loss of human life. And one of the guys at the tattoo parlor was asking me about my research. And I started talking about, you know, my, uh, you know, asking people about their belief in talismans and ghosts and spirit visions and talking about, uh, that kind of thing. And there was one, uh, other, uh, non-Japanese person there. And, um, you know, and when we were having this conversation, this, this guy who I think probably was from either Norway or Sweden or something like that was like, oh, of course, Japanese people believe in all these magical things because, uh, but that's because Japan is a kind of like mystical uh, Asia where people still believe in magic, but the West people don't believe in anything like that. And and I thought that that binary was junk. Um, it, it was bull. And, and in particular, in part, uh, to, to say autobiographically, it's because my grandmother is uh, was a famous anthropologist, uh, Felicitas Gutmann, who uh, herself went kind of the, the term that people used to describe her was went native. Uh, she, uh, on the Plucker Reservation in New Mexico, she started uh, believing in the existence of spirits. And, um, uh, and I remember from growing up, uh, you know, that her offering cornmeal to the ghosts at, as when the sunrise uh, came up to the spirits of the ancestors and, uh, and, and what have you, and the spirits of the land. And I knew that a lot of people came from all over the world to attend her, her these sessions that she gave on the reservation. So um, uh, very fa sometimes famous sociologists, anthropologists, and artists from Germany, from Mexico, from the United States. And so uh, I was always, you know, felt a, a bit of an outsider uh, but to that community, but I greatly admired my grandmother, who was one of my intellectual heroes, um, one of the reasons I study religion. And so I knew at least that she was, she was strange, but she wasn't that strange. And so this reinforced my sense that, uh, that this binary between an enchanted uh, Asia and a disenchanted West was in itself a kind of mythical distinction. So that's part one of the things that gave birth to this project to kind of look at Europe with the eyes of an outsider anthropologist, or look at Europe and America from this from from this uh, from this semi outsider uh, vantage point. Um, and, and that's where, yeah, I, I think I, I saw a lot of things that I uh, that yeah I didn't expect to see perhaps. And then, and then the other, but concretely in terms of disaster, it, I, I was planning to go to Tokyo, and it looked like Tokyo uh, was 
they, they were like, you couldn't get food. They were having trouble shipping stuff into the city. There were, we were looking, I was looking at law online at radiation levels that were spiking. And, and I just thought it was probably, I wasn't going to be able to get the kind of research that I was going to get done, done in Tokyo. So I went to Germany, uh, where I was intending to go, uh, at some point after that anyway. So I, sh so the disaster in a way uprooted me. And, uh, you know, I, I made sure that my uh, Japanese friends were safe and I tried to keep tabs on things, but I knew that, you know, like it wasn't going to be conducive to, you know, an American rooting around in the archives wasn't going to be conducive to, to what was happening in, in uh, Fukushima and, uh, uh, Tohoku in that particular moment. So, um, so I went to, uh, so I went to Germany and then got to, well, looked at the, went through the German archives, basically. I was trying to beef up my German. Uh, so I started reading a lot of stuff in German then. Yeah. We've cut, we've uh, gone around the world, I think three times at this point, you know? Yeah. But so I think so to wrap up, um, I think the fact is with the stuff we're talking about, we could go on about this for hours, but our listeners only yeah. have about half an hour. So to wrap yeah, up, totally. I think I think what I see is the contribution of your book is that it's identifying, you know, instead of the singular us v them science or Christian scientists, that's two separate words, Christian scientists, not Christian scientists, the religion versus the spiritualists. By showing the fact that it's more complicated, I saw a couple different strands in your book, and I want you to critique me if you think I've got the wrong strands. You've got Christians who are scientists and spiritualists. You have scientists who are spiritualists. You have spiritualists who aren't scientists but reject Christianity. You have so my point is like every single one of the part of the triad, you could flip that a couple different ways, and so suddenly you've yeah. got. Six or seven, I don't know, how many How many strands would you see in the book of how many different boxes people can fall into? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 didn't, uh, I, I didn't organize it that way, but I mean, I did organize it around the birth of these different disciplines. So what I, you know, I mean, I think you're right. In looking at the, the birth of these different disciplines, what I was interested in is the different ways that people navigated those categories. And you're right, they're, they're like a plurality, almost any option. You could be pro-science, pro-magic, anti-science, anti-magic, pro-Christianity, pro-magic, anti-Christianity, pro-magic. I mean, all the, all the possible options in much more uh, pluralistic way than, than, than you would get if you bought the story that suggested that the central feature of modernity is that no, people no longer believed in spirits or magic. So, and what you're talking okay, about is also a more interesting story. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope I, I highlight some interesting complexities and interesting figures. Um, and I did. I found a lot of stuff. I was surprised, you know, the amount of stuff that I could that I found that either was in diaries or letters or things that were lesser known works of a range of figures that really, you know, doesn't fit our received impression of these of these people. So um, both, and I look at not just uh, the founders of a lot of academic disciplines, but just for the sake of your readers, I look at also a number of famous uh, magicians and occultists and show how the, they were in dialogue with the academic world more than people often suppose. So, uh, you know, Alistair Crowley and Helena Blavatsky, for example, as, as two key examples. Um, and then I do 500 years of history. So, you know, basically it's Francis Bacon uh, to the Vienna positivists. So um, well, maybe not quite 500 years, but more like, but, but you know, 400 years of history. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It was a lot of stuff. It was a lot of fun. I had to leave out a lot. Um, yeah, I, I think, quick. and I've seen yeah. some of those articles you published. For instance, the one called "What's It God's Shadow," the one about science, yeah. the founders of the study of religion who were also obsessed with ghosts. Yeah, totally. Yeah, indeed. So I think, and I. Sorry, I didn't mean sorry. to cut you off. What were you saying? No, no, they, yeah, yeah. So I've got, yeah. So the book is uh, there are a lot of pieces that I had to cut out of it. And, a bunch of it, some of it has appeared in articles, and I have a bunch more book chapters coming out that'll look at different pieces. Uh, but I'm trying to move off of that. But I have, but I just had so much, and then the, I had to cut it down for publishing purposes. So it's a little bit tight in terms of the prose, but there's a lot of evidence there. Yeah. 
Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Joseph and Storm. It's been a very lively conversation. <laughs> and we speak to you too. And uh, having gone from the triad, which is flawed, to the stream, which is interesting, I look. Int- I'm interested to see what your theoretical book will say next. Of because once you explode the streams. And living in an age of fake news where anything goes, I'm very interested in where the study of religion and how we understand it goes next. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I'm working on. Yeah. Yeah, if you come up with a good answer, let me know. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'll have to read the book or interview me when the next one comes out. I, I, it's under contract. I'm claiming I'm going to have it to the press by uh, the, the end of 2019. So I have to come up with an answer by then anyway. Uh, we'll hope it's a good one. Yeah. Go test it on your undergrads. Yeah, totally. Thank you very much. Good to speak to you. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, Dan and Jason. Great to hear both of you back on the podcast again. Um, Jason also uh, he, he had a, I think in the, the latest issue of Method and Theory, there was a sort of semi-symposium type thing um, kicked off by, by Jason, uh, which was quite interesting. Uh, so I would recommend you checking that out as well. Um, another thing that you should check out is the call for papers for the BASR conference with the Irish Society in Belfast in September. We've extended the deadline to the end of May. Um, so, And that is genuinely because of uh, high levels of interest. And there's a, a lot of folk coming out of the woodwork uh, with panel proposals that uh, haven't been to the BASR for a wee while. So it's uh, quite exciting. Yeah, it's going to be great. And um I know the hosts, uh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Plus, we've got our, our Christmas special recording as well, as you know, is now traditional. Um, and we've started work on the planning for that. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. Stay tuned indeed. Um, stay tuned to the RSP as well, where next week, um, my good friend here, David Robertson, will be speaking with Anne Taves, um, who is another um returnee to the podcast he's been on a couple of times now um in different forms and talking about the the topic of her um gunning lectures at the university of edinburgh uh, a month or so ago on worldviews and ways of life yeah i really enjoyed speaking to Anne and spending time with her when mm. she was in edinburgh recently um i don't know that we've got too much else to say really i mean we're coming towards the end of the season yeah season series what do we call it? Semester? Well, um, any of those. <laughs> um, choose your poison. Uh, but there's one thing that we always have to say. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.